Greetings, and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show, coming at you from Moray Bay Studios, where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. I am your host, Matt Asher. Before we get to my guest today, and you will absolutely want to stick around for that, this show is also a podcast. In fact, it began life that way, and it lives on that way. Visit mattasher.com to download past episodes including this entire show if you miss any of it or want to hear my full, unedited conversations. If you happen to be in South Florida, you can listen to the show early before it hits the podcast feed on Keys Talk Radio 96.9 and 102.5 FM. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. Thank you all for joining me. I have a very interesting guest today. I asked him for a bio, as I do all my guests, and he pushed back on me. And I spent some time on the Wikipedia, which I sometimes do, to try to find the sort of short description. And I thought about it some more, and I think that the best way to describe this particular guest is that sometimes people come along who become the iconic figure of a field, the the representation of a particular field. And I don't think that that there's been a better example of this than my present guest, Aubrey de Grey, who is the face, I would say, of the life extension movement. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And I'm glad that I didn't give you an introduction. It wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as that one. I think it's fair. And there's a lot of things uh, that you've done that are not just life extension, and maybe we'll get into some of those. And for sure, I want to get into some of the broader questions surrounding life extension and not just the nitty gritty. But perhaps we could start with some of the basics here about your project and about SENS, if I'm saying that right, S-E-N-S. Right. So SENS Research Foundation, which is the organization that has been created around my work and my ideas, uh, we are a medical research charity. So we do early stage laboratory work to attempt to give rise to eventual therapies that will help people to stay healthier when they get old. And the therapies that we are mostly focused on, in fact, really entirely focused on, are rejuvenation therapies. In other words, we are interested not just in slowing down the clock of aging, but in actually turning it back by eliminating various types of damage at the molecular and cellular level that the body accumulates throughout life and that eventually make us sick. So there are two ways then to look at the way to do, I guess, life extension. One is just you try to keep people healthier, longer, and maybe even forever. The other one is the turning back the clock model, and you're working on the turning back the clock model. Is that right? Yeah, really, they're not exactly mutually exclusive models. Um, you see, I mean, the body is a machine, which means that it is, you know, it like any machine with moving parts, whether or not it's alive, um, it, it damages itself as a course, as in the course of its normal operation. It's just going to happen. Uh, in just the same way that a car accumulates rust. So, really, if you want to substantially postpone the health problems of late life, then you've got no choice. You've got to do rejuvenation. You've got to do damage repair. Right, right. And so, one of the interesting things I heard related to life extension was that 
I, I think this may have been Brett Weinstein who was talking about this or who I heard about it from, that organisms basically, they either die from a cancer, some kind of unconstrained growth of something that's malignant, or they die from old age. And it almost has to be one of those two situations, because if you've got a body that repairs itself very rapidly, then you get into autoimmune problems sometimes because it's attacking its own fast-growing stuff. And then if you've got a body that's just slowly aging and letting whatever happen, then, you know, then something can grow unconstrained. Or maybe I've got that backwards. Is, that, is there something there in terms of understanding the way metabolic processes work? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess that was a bit garbled, but basically, yes. I mean, it is fair to call aging a kind of um, a kind of arms race, a kind of trade-off between cancer and degeneration. So, cancer, as you just mentioned, being uncontrolled cell division, and degeneration is really the um, the, the, the body's um, accumulation of problems caused by its real, its constraints on cell division and regeneration. So, for example, our cells become progressively less stem-like. Our stem cells just don't work, work like stem cells as well as they used to late in life. Um, there are many other aspects of this, but the, yeah, the, the essential idea, yes, is that if we do a kind of simplistic um, improvement of some kind in our regenerative capacity, then the big risk that we have is that we will also exacerbate the risk of cancer. And similarly, when we try to bear down on cancer, the risk is that we will also bear down on our existing natural regenerative capacity, which is bad. So we have to kind of get the best of both worlds here in order to um, achieve the goal of extending healthy lifespan. So now that we have set up the, you know, the kind of the problem and the, the trade-offs there, in terms of your own work, what, what, how are you attacking the particular the, of the problem? Right. So um, we are actually treating this very much as a divide and conquer challenge. In other words, we have a lot of different types of damage that accumulate in the body, and they each need to be repaired and eliminated. Um, and that means we need different technologies, different medicines to do so. But um, just as a kind of um, uh, teaser for that, when we look at cancer, the thing that all cancers have in common, which is extremely useful, is that uh, all cancers have a method of extending the ends of their chromosomes, uh, what are called the telomeres. And indeed, this is a great example of what I was saying about the trade-off between cancer and regeneration earlier. Um, because the cell has a method for doing this naturally. It's called an enzyme called telomerase. And in general, as an anti-cancer defense, the body is very careful to suppress that enzyme as much as possible. And in fact, suppress it absolutely completely in most cells. And um, cancers find a way, by, just by mutation, to turn it on again. Now, the um, trick that we have, then, is something that basically targets cells when they are expressing this enzyme. And the most promising approach that I know of at the moment, which is currently being pursued 
by a company in Chicago, um, which has licensed the technology that came out of Texas, out of Dallas, is to essentially cause cells simply to die rapidly when they are making high amounts of this one enzyme telomerase. It's a wonderful technology, and I have very high hopes that it's going to be the biggest thing that we've ever seen in cancer therapies. So it's, uh, it, it's not from our own work, though it does have a lot in common with some ideas that I put forward 19 years ago. Um, uh, but this is a, you know, it's a really promising technology. You mentioned 19 years ago. This is a, a something that has been on your mind for a long time that you've been working on for quite a while. Do you feel like there's been progress made? And where would you say the current state of the art is in terms of uh, achieving what I think you've called it longevity escape velocity? Maybe you could start actually by explaining what that term means. Okay. Um, so yes, longevity escape velocity uh, is a term that I coined probably 17 years ago um, to denote the minimum rate at which we as scientists are going to need to improve the comprehensiveness of these rejuvenation therapies in order to stay essentially one step ahead of the problem for people who are getting progressively older and older chronologically to keep them not getting older biologically. Um, essentially, the, because this is rejuvenation, it buys time. So if we have a kind of panel of first-generation rejuvenation therapies that maybe give you 20 or 30 additional years of healthy life, then that means that we've got 20 or 30 years to figure out what to do when you come back with, you know, uh, you're, you're back at being biologically where you were at the beginning um, because the damage that the first-generation therapies don't actually work on has accumulated to a point that's, that's going to start making you sick. Um, so, yes, so that's what I call it. And um, I think we're only about 15 years away from achieving it. Now, when I say I think, what I mean is I think there's a 50% chance that we will get there in 15 years. But, of course, it's pioneering technology. So there's at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years. Um, that's OK, though. 50% is quite enough to be worth fighting for. So to come to the rest of your question, um, yes, there's been enormous progress. Um, of course, because this is a divide-and-conquer strategy where we have to develop a lot of different technologies, um, some of those technologies are further along than others. Some of them are actually in clinical trials now. Um, we at Sense Research Foundation, we work on the most difficult things, essentially because we can, because we're an independent charity funded entirely by philanthropy, and um, as such, we can... We don't have the constraints of short-termism that exist in academia or in uh, industry. Um, but yes, everything's gone. Everything has moved a great, a great, a very long way in the time that we've been doing this. Um, the work that we ourselves have done, we're very proud of. We've made some really important, groundbreaking breakthroughs. Um, but also, of course, there's been lots and lots of other people. I just mentioned this one cancer um, uh, therapy, but lots of other people. Um, doing that kind of thing, you know, doing damage repair-like work that is very closely aligned with what we do, uh, even though they're independent from us. And I guess the biggest thing that's happened in the last five years or so is the emergence of a real private sector industry in this, uh, with investors coming along and realising that the concepts here are sufficiently proven that they can actually join the dots, they can actually see their way to eventual revenue. And, you know, it's just a fact of life that investors tend to write bigger checks than donors do, which means that 
um, work gets done much faster uh, once, it, once it starts to be done in the private sector. So our business model at Sense Research Foundation, we're a 501c3 public charity, our business model is that we spin out our project, our startup companies, as soon as we can, as soon as there is enough investor interest for the company to be viable. We've done that half a dozen times already, and, you know, it's, um, it, it's definitely a really great chapter in the, uh, in, in the crusade uh, that this is now very much a thriving, burgeoning, and exponentially expanding private sector field. And you're doing some interesting stuff in the crypto space as well, which I want to ask you about. But before we get to that, as I'm, as I've been thinking about the life extension thing, as someone who's by no means an expert or even close in it, one of the things I find interesting when people talk about uh, the expanded lifetimes of people over the past fifty years or whatever it is, is that. Um, I wonder to what extent that's a function just of having reduced mortality at the early ages and to what extent it is a function of, of that we've genuinely gotten better at extending people's lives. And when I think about that and think about another point that you've brought up that I'll bring up here in a moment, I think about, for example, we had the the founding fathers of the U.S. to consider a set of people. Um, they, you know, Benjamin Franklin lived to 84, Washington to 67, Jefferson to 83, James Madison to 83, John Adams to 91. These are ages that you know, that people, most people would be happy to get to even today, and we're now talking about 200 years ago. Have we made progress up to now in life extension, or is it just that we're much better at keeping infants and, and young kids alive? Yeah, so it's a great question. So really there have been phases here. So the first thing that happened was keeping infants alive. So 200 years ago, literally more than one-third of babies would die before the age of one, even in the wealthiest countries in the world, US, UK, whatever. And, of course, virtually nobody dies in infancy anymore, in the industrialised world anyway. And, to be, that, to be honest, it's actually, you know, we're catching up really fast in the developing world. There is not a single country in the world now that has an average longevity less than 50. And if you exclude sub-Saharan Africa, that number is 60. So it's pretty good news. The average lifespan worldwide, taking every country into account, is already 73. Um, so yes, so that definitely happened. And um, it was the really by far the biggest determinant of the rise in life expectancy that was seen between, let's say, the mid-19th century and the mid-20th century um, in the industrialized world. Uh, so great. But now that it's been done, of course, you can't do any more. You can't do it again. You can't increase life expectancy any further by bearing down further on something that's already so, so small, namely the infant mortality rates that we see today. So the only reason why we have succeeded in continuing to increase life expectancy since, let's say, World War II in the industrialized world is because of bearing down on the risk of death at older ages. And we've done that absolutely by keeping people biologically younger for a given chronological age. So the average, let's say, 70-year-old today is considerably healthier than the average 70-year-old 100 years ago. Um, so, yes, there, is, there are various reasons why that's happened. Some of them are obvious, like, you know, there's not so much smoking. And 
uh, some of them are less obvious, it turns out that prenatal nutrition is really important in how long you live, in, 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 in what age you start to get the chronic progressive conditions of late life. And, um, you know, prenatal nutrition is a function, of course, of prosperity. So people who are dying now, um, you know, they were born in the early or, or yeah, relatively early 20th century, uh, you know, on average, they were born in a more prosperous environment than people who were born in the latter part of the 19th century. So this is a large part of why we're seeing increases. But that too is now hitting diminishing returns. Basically, there's only so much optimization you can do of things like prenatal nutrition. And so um, now we're seeing, and it's not just COVID, we were seeing it before COVID, uh, we're seeing various countries in the industrialized world actually declining very slightly in life expectancy because other things that act to shorten life, like, for example, the obesity epidemic, um, or, or the opiate, opioid crisis or other things like that. Uh, sure, sure. That, mm -hmm. That's outweighing the uh, the residual amount that we can increase on the obesity. So, the, so we're not going to see any significant increase in life expectancy again until some new third wave of um, reasons come along. And of course, that is the rejuvenation therapies that we're working on. So and, and the, it's interesting, of course, to speak about averages and to what extent the average lifespan has increased. But of course, your project is not so much about increasing the average lifespan per se. It's about allowing certain individuals to access longer, ever longer lifespans and perhaps ultimately hit that uh, escape velocity where death, I guess, only happens by accident. Um, well, I wouldn't say that uh, there's a distinction there because we certainly do want and intend that these therapies will be available to everybody. So it's absolutely that the average longevity will rise and rise and rise. I am um, somewhat skeptical about that, but we'll get back to that in a moment. Maybe I'll, I'll go back into why I mentioned the, that particular set of folks who lived a long time, the, uh, the founding fathers. One of the things I've seen you mentioned online is that one of the great killers is stress, which I have a hard time believing just because that particular set of individuals must have had lives that were stressful almost off the charts. They were firming, uh, signing a document that uh, could have effectively gotten them hung. And that wasn't just a small possibility, right? And even today, we see that presidents, again, that same set extended forward in time, live long despite the fact that they have perhaps some of the most stressful jobs in the world. Now, I will let you reply, but I am talking with Aubrey de Grey, and we are talking about life extension here on Keys Talk 1025. Please stick with us. We are back on The Matt Asher Show. I am talking with Aubrey de Grey. He is the face of the life extension movement. And 
we, when we left off, we were talking about the relationship between stress and aging. I had read that there was a connection between those two and that stress was a killer of sorts. And I had pointed out that certain people with certain kind of stressful jobs, nonetheless, and this is of course anecdotal, but they seem to nonetheless live very long lives despite that. Yeah, so it's not such a mystery as you may think, because it's not actually stress that's a killer. It's the response to stress. What stress does is it creates certain hormones in the body, cortisol and so on, that accelerate the accumulation of various types of damage in the body. But that only happens if your stress level psychologically is high. In other words, you don't have to be in a, having a stress-free life you just have to be able to handle it well. So you're absolutely right, this is true. And indeed, if you, are, if you ask, what do centenarians, people who live to 100, what do they tend to have in common? There's virtually nothing that they have in common, but one thing that they almost all do have is nothing bothers them. They're really able to roll with stressful situations. So that's the distinction that you were overlooking. And in fact, it's also important to understand that even though stress shortens life, it only shortens it a little bit. The, you know, the, the, there are lots of differences between different cultures, different nations across the world uh, with regard to diet and lifestyle and genetics even. But the differences in terms of um, longevity are actually pretty slight, if you think about it. Like everyone laughs at how the USA has by far the highest medical expenditure per capita in the world. Uh, and yet it's down around number 45 or something in the list of countries ranked by life expectancy. But actually, if you look at the absolute difference between the life expectancy in the US versus, let's say, Japan, the top country, it's only about five years. So it's not actually enormous. So uh, getting getting back, I guess, to the stress thing, the idea being that it, how you react to the stress as far as... Uh, things go is much more important than the fact that you have had stress. I've also actually heard people argue almost the other way around, that people who have no stress in their lives, um, I, I don't think there's an argument that anybody is literally dying of boredom, but perhaps that people without that kind of impulse are not driven along forward. I, that's not really a scientific argument, but there does seem to be perhaps a correlation there between uh, no stress and longevity. There's a germ of truth in that as well, yes. And in fact, that's an example of a more general phenomenon, which uh, the technical term for which is hormesis, H-O-R-M-E-S-I-S. So hormesis, basically, the idea is that when you're in a, in a challenging situation, and this may not be stress, this may be an infection or whatever, um, when you're in such a situation, there are defenses that the body has to combat and minimize and bring to an end the, um, the challenge. And those defenses persist after the challenge goes away. They don't persist forever necessarily, but they tend to persist somewhat. So actually you have a period after the stress has gone away of, if you like, elevated, unnecessarily elevated um, maintenance going on in the body. And that can have a mild but non-zero uh, impact in terms of increasing longevity and postponing the health problems of late life. This would be the... I guess, the anti-fragile view of certain yeah. kinds of stresses, or I guess another way to put it would be that the dose makes the poison. A, a little bit of a bad thing is not always a bad thing. 
that's basically right. Yeah, I mean, or you could just say use it or lose it. You know, it's really <laughs> I I guess so for sure. So as you transition, and I'm talking here with Aubrey de Grey about life extension and about hitting uh, escape velocity in terms of living indefinitely. And one of the things you get into when you talk to people about this is that they tend to have one of two reactions, I found anyway. One is, oh, cool, that's interesting. And the other one is, yuck. And I want to talk about that latter one for a moment. Uh, I, I have my own... Um, thoughts on what might be problematic about people living forever, but my own response is certainly not yuck. I wonder if you also have gotten that when you're talking to people and what you ascribe that to. Yeah, I certainly do get that. I spend my whole life contending with people's desperate attempts to pretend that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise um, and that we would create terrible problems if we solved the problem of aging. Um, but yes, it's um, it's painful because the arguments don't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever, and yet people insist on um, maintaining them. You know, people will say things like, oh dear, uh, doesn't death give meaning to life? Or, you know, um, won't it be boring? Or how will we pay the pensions? You know, stuff like that. Um, and like, they don't say those things about specific aspects of aging, like Alzheimer's or cancer or you know, atherosclerosis. They only say it about aging in general. Why? The answer, I think, is very straightforward. It's a psychological crutch. It's a way for people to avoid the horror of getting their hopes up and then having their hopes dashed by you know, progress not being as fast as they were expecting. The real thing is that, you know, aging is absolutely ghastly, and it's been something that we've known about since the beginning of civilization, of course, and nothing was possible to do about it. You know, it was you know, at a relatively predictable age, you're going to get sick, and you're going to get more sick, and you're going to die. And, um, you know, if nothing, if, if you don't get eaten by a tiger first. So, um, it makes sense to, you know, to trick yourself into some kind of... Um, pretense that aging is a blessing in disguise, or else that it's kind of some natural, universal, um, inevitable phenomenon that's woven so inextricably into the fabric of the universe that it's kind of completely off limits to medicine, even in principle. You know, either of those things works as a way of putting it out of your mind and getting on with your miserably short life and making the best of it, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing. And that makes sense. Or rather, it did make sense until I came along. Because, um, because really, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess I should uh, not be so um, boastful about it. But the fact is, before the damage repair paradigm that I first promoted 20 odd years ago now, before then, we didn't have a plan. We didn't have any idea how to go about bringing aging under medical control. And as such, we couldn't put any kind of time frame estimate on how long it was going to take. So it did make sense to put it out of your mind by whatever illogical means. Um, but now it doesn't make sense. And that deeply entrenched um, insistence on not thinking rad rationally about aging is an enormous part of the problem. I, I think that there are a lot of objections um, that are not founded on a rational basis or that are... Uh, that have counter-arguments that I see 
to them. I wonder, though, if you're willing to speculate for a moment more on that idea of the yuck factor or the response that is not on certainly on the, the, the cold, completely analytical plane, but on the direct human emotional, this is inhuman. Well, yeah, I mean, I think perhaps it is no surprise that uh, a lot of the people who really get this and support the longevity crusade come from tech, come from, you know, um, uh, scientific and engineering background. Um, because at the end of the day, technology is all about manipulating nature. It's all about doing something unnatural. And um, people are generally in favour of it when it works. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it's easier for an engineer, I think, to see that this is just the next technology. Well, certainly the nature of human beings is to change the nature of the nature around us. We are great adapters. Uh, we adapt ourselves to our environments to some extent, but more than anything else, we adapt the environments around us to us. And this would, in, in some sense, be the ultimate act of adaptation in that you are adapting your own bodies to live indefinitely. Well, that's right. But of course, we're already doing that. You know, vaccines are adaptations of our bodies to live longer. And so are glasses and, you know, cochlear implants and quite a lot of the other things that people do, do not have a yuck factor about. One of the discussions I've had before on the show and the podcast form was about the, the there's a story, the Theseus ship parable, in which a, a ship has every part of it bit by bit replaced, and then the question is, is it the same ship? We may be at some point getting into that kind of a position with human beings in that bit by bit our parts are failing and bit by bit those parts are being replaced, yet there is some kind of a continuity there, though I don't know that we've given enough thought and analysis to what that looks like to be living in a body that is continually being renewed, either through natural processes or processes that are aided by drugs, or through the replacement of parts with artificial parts, be they mechanical or lab-grown in some way. Yeah, honestly, I think we have thought about it enough. It's not a really a very interesting argument at all. You know, um, if we just think about uh, memories and tastes, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't like beer, and now I do. Um, you know, and there are, you know, I can't remember half of the names of the people I went to high school with. And these two things do not bother me. I do not regard myself as a different person. You know, there is the continuity between when I was a kid and now. And, you know, this is, and I don't know anyone who does worry about being a different person than they were when they were young. So to me, it makes no sense. I, I see what you're saying, though. Think about it maybe at the individual level. Uh, to What we're doing when we're trying to extend life is to extend our own experience, to extend our own consciousness, right? So, but our consciousness, it does change over time. We become new people over time. Those things happen. The memories decay and so forth. Though, if you were to think about it at some point and you were to consider perhaps an instantaneous and radical change, well, to what extent are you willing to entertain that? One of the previous guests talked about whole body replacements, taking a head off and putting it uh, on a different body. Uh, maybe we'll get into cryogenics in a moment or two here. But to what extent, as you're thinking about 
I'm extending my life by extending my consciousness? Am I willing to extend my consciousness if I have replaced parts of me that were an integral part of me? And for my own part, I definitely say that my stomach and its own brain is definitely a key part of me. And so to lose that would be, uh, that would be an abrupt change in the consciousness that uh, I'm looking to perpetuate on an individual level. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does, but there's a very easy answer to it. It all comes down to the scale at which replacement is done. So if we just look at simple man-made machines like cars, you know, when you replace the engine of a car, you are repairing the car. But when you replace the spark plugs of the engine, you're repairing the engine and so on down, right? So similarly, you know, it would probably rather defeat the object, I think most people would agree, to replace the whole of somebody's brain in one go. They would definitely be a different person. Um, but if you replace it one cell at a time, you know, with stem cells being used to replace individual neurons that, that had spontaneously died then it becomes much harder to see that there's any kind of abrupt instantaneous change going on. And it's the same with the stomach or with the liver or anything like that. We can, at this point, do liver transplants or heart transplants. And most people do not report that they feel that they are a different person as a result. But supposing they did, we could totally do the same thing at the cellular level rather than at the whole organ level. If we do that, of course, then, you know, that, that does... I, I do think that there are some interesting questions there in terms of to what extent we are, you know, we are perpetuating ourselves or we're just perpetuating something, whether it's ourselves or not. A lot of that, I think, is wrapped up in the mystery of consciousness itself and what it looks like to have a continuous consciousness. A lot of the interesting discussions I've had uh, revolve around the idea of panpsychism, which is that consciousness exists at even the tiniest granular level of matter, or experience does at any rate, and that there's no one magic moment when consciousness appears. Complexity increases, um, and the richness of the experience may increase, but it exists at all levels, and we ourselves are not just, in this view, one consciousness, but we are made up of multiple consciousnesses, right? In which case, when you start talking about parts of our body that have an experience onto itself, you know, we may be getting into some kind of airy areas here, but it, it's not clear to me what what is what aspects of us we're sacrificing to perpetuate others. Sure. I mean, my, my take is, See it yourself. I'm, I'm a practical first things first kind of guy. I just don't want to get sick and I don't want anyone else to get sick either. So let's go to that idea of cryogenics. You are signed up for that. Is that right? And maybe you could tell the listeners what that is. Yeah. So first of all, the word is not cryogenics. The word is cryonics. Oh, my apologies. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone makes that mistake, but it's uh, it's an easy way to betray that you don't know much about the field. Um, <laughs> um, so... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so cryonics is the concept of taking someone who has just become pronounced legally dead and freezing them down to really low temperature, liquid nitrogen temperatures, um, so as to preserve their bodies. What's the point of doing that? The point is that in the future we're going to have more sophisticated medicine than the medicine we have today, and we may be able to revive these people. The reason that that makes any sense at all is because of what death really is. 
people think about death very often as a an instantaneous thing. You go from being alive to being dead, nothing in between. But that's biologically nonsense. What actually happens is that your heart stops and you start decaying at a much more rapid rate than you were when your heart was beating. Um, but it's still a finite process that takes time. And that's why we are, in principle, in a position where if someone is only just slightly more damaged than they were when they were alive, they may actually actually be alive uh, in the context of better medicine. So we'll have to pick that up after the break here. I'm talking with Aubrey de Grey, and we are talking about life extension here on Keys Talk 1025. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Show on 1025 Keys Talk Radio. I'm talking with Aubrey de Grey, and we were talking about cryonics, and in particular on the decision to freeze a part of one's body in the hope that science catches up later, and you are able to be revived, which is, is fascinating to me, and I have actually considered at least lightly that possibility, but what stays my hand might be related to um, to a kind of gamble that you'd have to do here with this. So if you do this, then you are gambling not just that you'll be revived, and I think that that's the smallest of the gambles because you're not putting in perhaps relative to your total net worth and lifestyle that much money, but what you are putting in, you're making something like a Pascal's wager in reverse. You know the term Pascal's wager? Yeah, that's a nod uh, from Aubrey, who I should mention for those of you who are listening to this on the radio, I recommend, as long as you're not driving right now, a Google image search. Aubrey has a, a beard that would put ZZ Top, the ZZ Top guys to shame. Uh, so very much worth checking him out in that sense. Uh, but so to get back to the idea of Pascal's wager idea is that um, you're going to do something and there may be a very small chance of something catastrophic happening. And so you want to try to avoid that. If you're taking the, the I guess, the long bet on cryonics and having your brain frozen, you are betting that when you wake up, you will wake up into a better world as well. You could also wake up, and this is the side of the Pascal's wager that I fall on, there's a possibility that you wake up in a world that is infinitely worse and there's nothing mm. you can do about it, and now you're trapped in that world forever. It may be a very very low probability. We don't know. There's tons of uncertainty, but just the existence of that possibility as a non-zero probability would keep me away, but it hasn't kept you away. Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, yes, you can always look at these possibilities, but you have to evaluate their plausibility, right? So, I mean, why would civilization of the future take the trouble to revive someone who was cryopreserved in order to give them a bad life? You know, it just, like, doesn't add up. Um, so, really, it's, it's, I mean, it is a kind of Pascal's wager, you're right, but not one that actually makes any sense. You know, there's no downside to speak of. Um, somebody, one of the um, foremost people in cryonics once said that cryonics is an experiment. It's ongoing. We don't know um, whether it's going to work. Uh, but we 
do have the control group, the people who have not been cryopreserved. And we know quite a lot about them. They're not doing very well. So, um, you know. I, I guess, so here's, here's a different way to put this. So the idea of the Pascals, I didn't make it in explicit for the listeners in the last part, is that if you want to understand the kind of the expected value of a particular option, you have to multiply the probability times the goodness or the badness of the outcome. And if you put a non-zero probability on something that would be infinitely bad or infinitely good, then you should probably go for that or stay away from that, assuming that you have a choice and that you're not forced into taking the wager one way or another, right? And that, you know, that you're always going to be exposed to infinite downside. But assuming that you're not and that you have that option, then I still wonder, does that not pull at you that 0.000 whatever it is chance of uncertainty that you are going to be revived into a matrix that is someplace you'd rather not be in and you don't have a choice? Yeah, of course it doesn't. I mean, because it's exactly the same logic that would stop people from crossing the street. You know, there's a a very small probability that somehow you will break your leg as you are crossing the street and you will be hit by a truck. Uh, But... You know, you cross the street anyway. It's the same thing. Though immortality changes the game, right? Forever is a different beast. I, as a kid, if I could have taken a pill and woken up immortal, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Nowadays, if someone offered me a pill and it guaranteed immortality from now until the end of time, I wouldn't go anywhere near that. The potential downsides are enormous as far as what situations you might find yourself in. Ah, but that's not really true, is it? I mean, the um, you know, there's no such thing as immortality in this. This is, this is technology that will give us, will have the chance of giving us a greater expectation of living longer. But there's going to be a non-zero probability of dying every single day. So it makes no sense whatsoever to say, oh dear, you know, forever's a very long time, therefore something bad might happen in the arbitrarily distant future, therefore I'd prefer to die. But there is escape velocity. Ah, but that's different. Escape velocity is all about bearing down on the amount of damage in the body and keeping it below the level that makes us sick, so that your probability of dying is not dependent on how long ago you were born. In other words, it's the same as it is for a young adult. But that's the, that probability is still not zero. That some sort of accident will happen, or I suppose that you, you... This is, of course, assuming that you live in a world where you still have autonomy over your own body and its choices. Yeah, all that. All right. that, yes. So a number, there are a number of objections to trying to keep people around longer and longer, having to do with resources being consumed um, on Earth and uh, in terms of pollution and impact on the planet. But I want to take a a different approach, and this is going to be something that I haven't given a huge amount of thought to, but I was thinking about today, which is that to a certain extent, our society depends upon churn and upon the people who are in positions of power eventually fading out of positions of power. There's a, an old proverb of uh, from shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three generations, the idea being that uh, someone will accumulate a huge amount of wealth, they will pass it on to the next generation, that next generation will 
uh, squander it in one way or another, and then by the time of the grandkids, you'll be back to working class. And this is this expression is a, a warning to people, but it also is in some ways a comfort socially in the sense that you don't have a locked-in aristocracy that can never be dislodged. You have churn, you have upward mobility, you have people with power who eventually give it up. Uh, we are now on year something or other where the baby boomer generation has had a stronghold on certain aspects of the culture and politics. We have, for example, in the realm of academia, the average age of the, a college president has gone up almost an entire year every year. Uh, that we've gone forward since something like 1970, 1980. Uh, so you have a situation in people naturally don't want to give up power. They don't want to give up what they have. That's part of what makes us human. But what also makes us human is that we die um, and things turn over. I, I, there's more I have to say about that, but I want to stop there for a moment and, and get your reaction to that particular objection. Yeah, it's another of the more common ones, actually. Uh, and honestly, it's, yeah, it doesn't take much um, thought to figure out that it's nonsense. Because the fact is, we have the capacity in society to address the problem of, um, let's call it cognitive ossification, in any particular area if we want to. We can, for example, make the tax system uh, such that you pay higher taxes the longer you stay in the same job. We can, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done in order to, you know, introduce and, and uh, you know, incentivize churn, as you're calling it, um, that make it not a reason to let people carry on getting sick and dying just because they were born a long time ago. And, of course, the additional thing we have to take into account here is that people young people especially, enjoy novelty. And that's not because they're chronologically young, it's because they're biologically young. Um, so if we are keeping people biologically young, cognitively, then they're not going to want to do the same thing forever. The argument here, I, I agree with that, that people will want change, though the argument here isn't necessarily that there couldn't be workarounds to this, but that you've got a, from a game-theoretic point of view... People with power like to keep their power. They like to extend it. You have examples of uh, intragenerational wealth and intragenerational power in the form of kings and so forth. And if you just look, so those, those have existed before. That isn't something that's necessarily new. But what's new is that you could have a, a single person or a single group of people who have power. You know, Jeffrey Bezos lives forever, and those other oligarchs live forever. At what point does their power diminish? At what point do they decide, I've had enough political power, right? And what if there's not just three of them, but there are 10,000 of those people who are controlling the politics? Yes, you know, society could decide they don't want those people in power, but those people, after 500 years, they've got a lot of it. Well, sure. But, I mean, there are examples of how we've already successfully addressed such problems. I mean, just like, let's talk, look at term limits in politics, right? You know, Roosevelt didn't introduce term limits, but they still got introduced, right? It wasn't very difficult for the U.S. to get its act together and ensure that someone could not be 
the US president for life. Um, and we can do that all over the place if we want to, if we decide that there's actually enough of a problem to be worth solving. So we're close to out of time on the radio section here. Before we wrap up on the air, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your involvement in the crypto space and uh, what you're doing there. So it's not actually what we're doing in the crypto space. The crypto community has been among the most fervent supporters of what we're trying to do here to bring aging under medical control. And for the past few years, a number of the more prominent people in the crypto world have actually been supporting us financially, the most conspicuous of them being Vitalik Buterin, the guy who created Ethereum. But um, your question is very timely because right now we are in the middle of what is called an airdrop, which has been orchestrated by another prominent person in the crypto community named Richard Hart, who created the cryptocurrency Hex. And rather than giving us money himself, which he certainly could do in principle, um, he has decided to encourage other people to do so. And so thousands of people have over the past few days been giving us, in most cases, in many cases, quite substantial donations. We've got well over $25 million in like six days. It's completely mind-blowing. This is like five times our typical annual budget, so it's going to be completely transformed formative for Sense Research Foundation. And all I can say is thank you, Richard, and thank you to all of the donors. I want to thank Aubrey de Grey for being with me here on Keys Talk 1025, and I'll talk to you guys again in a week. Oh, and one more thing I really should mention. We are gearing up to do our first ever live show. This will be on August 19th, right in downtown Key West. Make sure to mark your calendars. You will not be disappointed. I'll have an announcement very soon about ticket sales coming online. Picking back up and welcome to all of the podcast listeners. We were talking about crypto. Uh, I, I have my own Vitalik stories. I was at one of the very first blockchain or Ethereum hackathons. It actually wasn't a, an Ethereum hackathon specifically. It was a decentralized uh, hackathon there in Toronto uh, back some years back. He's a very interesting uh, person for sure and the real deal. The crypto space in particular is, is highly vibrant and, uh, and, and very, very interesting. Perhaps that gets me back to that idea. Maybe, maybe do, maybe the trick is that people stay mentally young because when I look at where all of the innovation has come in the last 50 years, it's not really come from the people who are, it's come from places like Silicon Valley, which I think is where you are, um, and from uh, people who are young and who are out there taking risks and experimenting. It hasn't come from old money. That's right, yeah. And I mean, um, I think right now the fact that the crypto world is so heavily populated with people who are in their 20s is very important in two ways, not just because those people are mentally young, but actually because they have never had to change their minds about aging. So Vitalik read my book when he was 14. And, um, you know, ever since then, he's been quite clear that this is something he wanted to make a contribution to. And, you know, these people, I call them the children of the revolution, people who, um, you know, just grew up feeling that it was completely obvious that aging is a medical problem that we need to solve, as opposed to having originally been brainwashed into some kind of pro-aging trance state 
that um, you know that there's some it's the aging of the blessing in disguise or that it's immutable, and then having to you know be persuaded out of that trance. Yeah, I guess getting getting back to that, what what does that look like then? Suppose suppose Vitalik continues along. Suppose those folks continue along for two hundred, three hundred years. They're extraordinarily smart people. Uh, a number of them in that space, and I've met a number of them. Um, what does that look like? At what point do they not completely rule the world? Well, I think it's rather important to remember that there are plenty of smart people who already don't rule the world. You know, just because they didn't have the right bit of luck early in their life to have the right education or whatever. Uh, so I think what we're actually likely to see is a lot more smart people getting the chance through adult education and retraining and so on because they have time. And we will. Yeah, but anyway, you know, even if that didn't happen, I can think of worse people to rule the world than Vitalik Buterin. I, I, I suppose so, though, uh, again, anyone who gets in there and can never be dislodged it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic to say the least, uh, right? Well, let, let's think about it a different way, right? Human beings were hierarchical creatures. It's in our nature to, uh, to to have a social hierarchy and to exploit that social hierarchy. This is our essential nature. Uh, there are other animals that might be that way, but either they're not social or they don't have long enough lifespans. You think about something like an octopus, clearly highly, highly intelligent creatures, but they live one or two years. They don't pass along that information to the next generation. And as a result, you have uh, you don't have any concentration of power in the octopus community, right? That's one extreme of it. But if you imagine that each one could live indefinitely and it, they were social creatures, hierarchies would be established, power dynamics would be established, and there would be certainly attempts to entrench them. So I, the way I'm thinking of this is just as a spectrum, right? There's no one point where a power hierarchy becomes undethronable, but there is a marginal propensity to increase that. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, but I think you're completely wrong. I mean, think about just the the fact of democracies, right? Democracies, are, you know, have a pretty healthy history ever since, you know, the ancient Greeks, they've been gradually taking over and more and more countries are democ democratic now. Now, democracy just is the antithesis of what you just said. It's anti-hierarchical. Everyone's got the same number of votes. And that's why we have tools that uh, we've already touched on, like term limits and taxation, um, which can be used however society wants to use it um, to solve whatever is viewed as a problem in this. And let's remember that some people just don't think it is a problem that, for example, only the top 1% of people in the world can afford to have a yacht. You know, I mean, that's okay. But it's not okay if... if we were talking not about yachts, but about clean running water. And lo and behold, that's why clean running water is actually available to everybody, because, you know, the people like it that way. Um, you know, so we, can, we have the tools with which to solve these problems. But to be clear, I, this is not an argument that uh, in favor of egalitarianism per se, I'm not 
saying that. And also to be clear to the listeners uh, about the nature of the show, this is about entertaining possibilities and considering possibilities and even counterfactuals. So it's not about getting locked into uh, one particular vision of the future or why one particular kind of future would be either a utopia or a complete dystopia. The history of the world seems to show that uh, that, that we have plenty of both. We have plenty of good times and bad times, and that the bad times do tend to come to an end. It's more an argument about to what extent things become unbounded or in, unable to move back in the other direction. And I tend, when it comes to that, to think about forces and what are the forces that are going to counterbalance it. I, I'm not... Uh, particularly a believer that we have a, a democracy in any meaningful way here right now. I think maybe we will again after the United States splits up. But at the moment, uh, it's not clear to me that voting does anything. <laughs> well, I guess you're not alone in that view, but I'm not alone in the opposite view. We'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. Getting back to an earlier uh, aspect of the conversation, I wanted to ask, you mentioned telomeres. One of the, so my background is in statistics and one of the most interesting things in that is, is your sample representative when you're doing a study? And I've heard a, a fair amount of discussion about mice and mice in the labs being nothing at all like mice in the wild. It, do you know something about that? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's completely true that mice, in fact, one of my colleagues just, he, he um, humorously calls them mouse-like creatures because they have been bred in the lab for so many generations that they have acquired many characteristics that are very different from mice in the wild. In particular, they are far more docile than mice in the wild because they, you know, the ones that we still have are the ones that didn't choose to escape. Um, so... Yes, absolutely, that's true. Uh, there's another problem in relation to telomeres with mice, which applies to wild mice as well as lab mice. Namely, they express a lot of this enzyme telomerase in most tissues, um, whereas, as I mentioned earlier, humans do not. It's generally believed now that the reason for that is simply that um, telomerase thrift, let's call it, you know, bearing down as much as possible on the expression of telomerase, simply is not an effective anti-cancer trick in small animals because small animals can be killed by small cancers and a can so it doesn't work basically it only works in large animals like humans um, and for that reason you have to do a lot of genetic messing around with mice in order to do experiments uh, relating to the telomere that have any real relevance any real inform information content in relation to eventual medical um, advances uh, yeah, in general, you know, we just we have what we have in the laboratory. We use the organisms that are available, and um, sometimes people choose to look at a novel species in order to study some particular aspect of biology, including aspect of aging. Uh, but it's always really hard work to actually build up the body of knowledge to be able to study a new species. That lots of things just have to be, you know, reinvented. One of the this is one of the things that I imagine makes the progress slow going, despite our uh, tremendous technical abilities right now. Is that it, what we're trying to do is extend the lives of human beings, and 
an individual experimental subject, a human being, is going to live to 75 or 80 years without any interventions, at the, you know, with the current uh, situation that we have. So any, to see how any particular experiment or treatment or whatever plays out, that's a, a very long experiment to do. Yeah, not necessarily, in fact, because remember, if we're talking about rejuvenation, about damage repair, then we, we would expect to have a rather rapid, um, well, separation of the curve, so to speak, between the treated group and the control group in, in a clinical trial. Um, and these things can be measured. You don't have to use death as the endpoint. You can use function, you know, like, you know, how fast someone can walk or how tightly they can grip something or, um, or other functions like blood pressure or stuff like that and indeed there are increasingly sophisticated such things these are good predictors of how soon you're going to get sick and if the intervention rejuvenates those predictors then you can be pretty sure that it really is going to postpone the age at which you get sick so these these indicators then give you something to go on they're kind of a, a a metric that you can use to say we are making progress in this we have something like a a biological age that we can suss out that's exactly right so these are kind of proxy you know um little windows on one's biological age you can define biological age as simply the amount of damage that the body has in it right of these various types that i was talking about earlier right now in general, one cannot, with today's technology anyway, directly measure all of those types of damage at all accurately. But there are things that correlate well with them that one can measure, and therefore, yes. Got it, got it. So getting back to the some of the challenges, perhaps, of having a society in which people live forever, one possibility that others have floated is, well, you know, maybe some people will escape that society by colonizing other planets. But I take it you're not so much a, a big fan of the colonization approach to kind of extending out humans' presence. And Yeah, not, not really, no. In fact, yeah, I often have to berate some of my fellow crusaders in the longevity movement for saying that that is the solution to having too many people. Uh, Firstly, because it wouldn't even work. So you just mentioned you have a statistics background. Um, anyone who has any mathematical background will immediately see that this can't possibly work because there's only so much space we can get to in a certain amount of time. Um, so, you know, the way it goes up is the cube of the time we have. Um, whereas if there is a, an exponential growth in population, even if the exponent is really small, um, nevertheless, that's going to overtake a polynomial growth every time. And in fact, if you do the arithmetic, it's very easy to see that this could only get us out for a few hundred years, even with very generous assumptions. Essentially, before we end up hitting problems of the speed of light, we end up hitting problems of there not being enough matter to make the people out of, let alone the spaceships and so on. Um, you know, we basically can't get beyond the solar system in that kind of that kind of approach. It's a complete joke. But of course, the real problem, the biggest problem with that response to the concern about where we would put all the people, is that most people don't want to go into space. So, if you say this, then not only are you not going to reassure or convince the person you're talking to, you're also just going to make them think that you're you're a spaceman yourself, you know, and you're, you're not really in touch with the real world. And they're not going to listen to any of your other arguments either. So, yeah. I, it's certainly, uh, I'm not that interested in going to space right now, but if there were a theme park on Mars that was 
interesting enough, and I could bounce around on the lower gravity uh, with you know after it's been terraformed and all those other things have happened, then that certainly would change my mind. I think that that's another case where technology and our advances might catch up to the point where the average person is much more inclined to uh, to take a trip that lasts forever. Oh, well, not necessarily one that lasts forever is the point. I mean, space tourism is all very well. You know, we might indeed want to go to the theme park, but you might not want to stay in the theme park forever. People stayed in the thir- the first world, or <laughs> the uh, the new world uh, forever and, and made it and made it home, right? I uh, I don't know that much about the plans for space colonization, but I assume it would be the same thing. You, you make, you, we adapt our, this is, as we said, as I said, this is our nature as human beings is to adapt our environment. We would adapt those environments to be awesome for us, or, you know, or take lots of drugs to make them manageable. <laughs> maybe. Maybe, maybe. I think that's a, a good place to wrap up. i Thank you so much for coming on. And I also congratulate you for uh, what you've accomplished, both in the span of your career and with your books, and also more recently in uh, with The Rays. That's uh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Yes, we've still got a long way to go, but we're definitely going to be moving faster now as a result of the generosity of our supporters. So what I think I hear you saying is that by June of next year, we'll be there, right? <laughs> I wish, but I think 15 years is, is looking good. 15 years. All right. You've got the prediction right here. Aubrey, thanks so much for coming on the Matt Asher Show. My pleasure.